What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today Dr. Bob Sikorsky, who is a trauma anesthesiologist, and in fact, he is the director of trauma anesthesia here at Johns Hopkins. He has a long career with a ton of experience in trauma anesthesia, and I'm really excited to have him on the show to discuss kind of an intro overview of trauma anesthesia. We may well have him back in the future to do some deep dives on specifics, but this will serve as an introduction to trauma anesthesia. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chad. Pleasure to be here. All right, so let's start really, really basic, uh, and just tell me, what is trauma anesthesia? Why do we have a separate terminology for that as opposed to just regular anesthesia? Uh, I, I think that trauma anesthesiology is based on the science of resuscitation. Most people think of an anesthesiologist as um, a medical specialist who manages the airway uh, and provides anesthesia and amnesia throughout a case. However, in trauma anesthesiology, we're a, basically a full, well-rounded clinician. Uh, it becomes critical care and resuscitation in the operating room. It requires a deeper, uh, I think, foundation, a more broad foundation of what actually happens from pre-hospital to in-hospital care and then a continuum of care of those patients come back from the critical care units for follow-up surgical procedures. So um, I, I look at it more as a, uh, a critical care, especially an intraoperative critical care, especially based on the science of resuscitation. Great. I think that's a great way to define it. So it's broad. It requires a lot of knowledge. It kind of melds, uh, right, some of the things we think about in emergency medicine, even pre-hospital medicine, obviously anesthesia, and then critical care, as you said, because these patients often go to the units and then are coming back to the operating room for repeated operations. Correct. All right, great. So when you are uh, thinking about kind of the basics of taking care of a trauma patient, what comes to mind? What are you What are you keeping in mind that is maybe a little different than if you had a regular you know patient coming in from home for a procedure? The primary thinking or the primary thought process should be the pathophysiology of the injury. First of all, whether it's blunt or penetrating, or at times it could be a combination of both. However. If it is blunt, say in a motor vehicle crash or motorcycle crash or a fall, knowing those vectors of injury uh, and being able to guide you down that path of treatment, knowing the pathophysiology and the vectors of injury is, are really important. So I think that's where the knowledge of pre-hospital care comes into play. And also the team dynamics is really important. And tell me a little more about that. When you what what is the team dynamic that is that is so important here? In trauma, it's it's very important that everyone has a role. We think traditionally as anesthesiologists is the airway management expert, and that the surgeon is guiding the resuscitation, and we have other various uh, anesthesia care uh, technicians, assistants, uh, critical care or clinical technicians in the trauma bays, uh, the nurses. So everyone has a role. However, roles may be um, kind of in that gray area where someone may be focusing, like the surgeon, may be focusing on a surgical procedure, and he doesn't have the time 
to look at those vital signs and continuing the resuscitation. So knowing when you step in or if another team member has confidence in you, more confidence in you than others or with your experience, they may ask for your guidance even though you may not be in the surgical specialty, being an anesthesiologist with resuscitation experience, they may ask you to step in and continue their their job. So knowing everyone's roles and actually overseeing as well, knowing when someone should be doing something that they get distracted from is very important. So mm-hmm. team dynamics is important. Communication, extremely important. So um, you may notice at the head of the table that your airway compliance has changed. That may be an indication that you need to do needle decompression or uh, a chest tube. I have one of the team members do that. Or you may just notice that one of the hemoth- one of the thor- you know hemithoraces is not ascending or descending with ventilation, and that may be a clue as well. So um, there are many different ways that you can uh, overlap with other trauma team members. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I would imagine this, we often think of this as a very potentially fast-changing environment. And so like your, these things you're mentioning, things can change at any time. So you have to be vigilant and you have to be communicating because if something changes and there's not good communication, you can miss something very important. Absolutely. So let's um, go kind of, as you said, this involves pre-hospital, you know, intra-hospital, and ED, or, or maybe the kind of transition from pre-hospital to intra-hospital being the ED, then intraoperative, and then post-operative. So maybe if we look at some of each of those, we can cover some interesting stuff. So you mentioned that when you're thinking about what happens pre-operatively, one of the big things you have to ask is about the mechanism, so blunt versus penetrating. So what are some of the things that you have in your mind if you already know a patient's coming in and they're blunt trauma versus penetrating trauma? What's, what is different in your head? Uh, starting with penetrating, it's usually that that source of injury is usually a gun or a knife. Uh, it may be uh, an object, uh, an impalement. And usually the injury follows that trajectory, whatever it be. And depending on the muzzle velocity, the caliber, the distance, uh, you'll have a shock wave at that, from the penetrating injury. So your, your area of injury is kind of limited to a zone or a cone, be it uh, of the the entry of the uh, the implement. Uh, in blunt trauma, we're talking about a much larger dose of shock, much lar- larger dose of tissue injury. So coagulopathy, uh, instead of instead of in in the case of penetrating injury, would be more of hemorrhage you're facing more of a coagulopathy, a hyperfibrinolytic, if you will, state because of the extent of the injury. There'll be multiple injuries. It could be bony injury. It could be soft tissue. It could be viscous. Uh, So you have many, many areas of of different stages of injury. And in those areas, say for compartments, you could have bleeding that's not obvious to the clinician. Uh, So you have to be aware of if there's a pelvic injury, do I have a retroperitoneal bleed? If there's a long bone fracture, am I bleeding into my compartments? And many times you could be bleeding into those compartments under the drapes. If they're doing an X-lap and you have continuing resuscitation needs or an increasing lactate, you have to be aware of those injuries that may not be obvious in the operative field. So the knowledge of those patients' injuries and uh, the knowledge of your progression of resuscitation and the response that you should be getting putting the big picture together really, really is important. Great. So let me ask you briefly about, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but in terms of the pre-hospital care, uh, are there 
kind of best practices that you would assume should be done, for example, should patients be getting blood transfusion pre-hospital? Is that something that we know, or is that still kind of unknown? Should they be getting um, tranexamic acid pre-hospital? Are there things that should happen or that may be happening pre-hospital that it's important to know about? I think that's very dependent on the uh, transport times mm-hmm. of the pre-hospital uh, or the EMS or Aviation Command being in Maryland, helicopter medevac. So in some states, in some regions, they have very long transport times. So going for a transport or going to the scene, carrying blood, blood products, TXA, tranexamic acid, may be very different or may have a different need or role than say here in East Baltimore with the transport time, maybe five minutes at, at max. Right. So the, the roles of pre-hospital care are different depending on the proximity of the trauma center and uh, the transport times. Okay, great. So now let's say this patient arrives to the ER. Um, what kind of survey of this patient is important to have done, whether it's by us in anesthesia or by the ER or by the surgeons, but the team and the trauma team, what kind of, what kind of, Observations. What kind of history and physical do we need to make sure that we're appropriately managing and triaging this patient? Well, I think the most important thing for the trauma team is to listen and and take very uh, special focus toward what the pre-hospital providers are giving to us in report. They they give us a really uh, a hands up on a on a trauma patient. You know they they know blood loss at the scene. They know time that the, the patient was down. They know initial vital signs. Um, so that gives us a, a very, very good baseline uh, at the point of injury. Uh, when they come in, we know the transport time. They, they give us how many, uh, how much volume of, of fluids, and hopefully it's not a lot of crystalloid. And uh, so it, it's, a, it's important. It's important to know that there's a trend, either that patient is stable or becoming more and more unstable, uh, and they actually can give us some insight into some of the wounds because they're turning those patients, putting them on the board, collaring them. Uh, when those patients come in, they're, they're uh, supine, and we haven't enrolled them yet and did our primary and secondary survey. So I think key is to listen to those pre-hospital providers. They give us a lot of information. Once the patients get there, you do your primary survey, your airway, breathing, circulation, uh, looking uh, for you know disability exposure, neurodeficit, all those things, and disability. Uh, and many times in the secondary um, survey, we're looking for things like medical history. But in, in the trauma patient, we very frequently do not have any history whatsoever. Right. So it, it basically is uh, all reacting to those patients' uh, hemodynamics and their response to what we're doing to them. Right. And you mentioned uh, both by listening to the pre-hospital providers and doing your own surveys, you're going to be looking at what's going on in the patient. And, and I think one of the classic questions, right, is the patient who comes in with, I don't know, the gunshot wound to the chest or the broken leg that's so obvious and nobody looks and notices the stab wound in the back. Correct. Right? So making sure you catch all of the potentially occult injuries. And, and the pre-hospital provider, you know, will bring those patients in and very frequently. If you have blood on the back of the patient, say they're wearing a hoodie and there's a lot of blood soaked back there, it's an indication that there may be a wound that you need to look at. And that would be part of the, the survey by law rolling the patient and looking everywhere that there's a hidden wound. Right. We had that with President Reagan, right? He right. shot in the axilla and nobody really saw the wound right. until he had difficulty breathing. So getting those patients uncovered 
which we should have the trauma base warm because our our survey is cutting all the clothes off and getting a really good uh, global look at that patient and their perspective or their possible hidden injuries. Right. And that's the, I think some people think of that as the E, right, in the A, B, C, D, E, E for exposed. Exposed. Right. Um, All right. So we've done these surveys. We've identified hopefully all of the injuries. Maybe we get some imaging depending on what the team thinks is needed, right? Mm-hmm. I would assume they, not all trauma patients need a full PAN scan. Correct. So we Correct. Decide- if they're a single system injury, right. someone falls down the steps and fractures a femur and they have no other obvious signs or physical exam, uh, then you may not need a full body scan okay. or PAN scan. So you're going to get whatever imaging you're going to get and then make a decision about whether this patient needs to go straight to the operating room or not. And are there any kind of key findings that would make you say this patient definitely needs to go straight to the operating room? A low Glasgow coma scale in terms of, um, say, uh, verbal response, if there's any decorticate or decerebrate uh, posturing, just a simple look in a, a pupillary exam. And if you have an isochoria, any unequal pupils, or one very dilated pupil, uh, ruling out metabolic um, you know, causes uh, that you would probably need to go right to scan for the head. Now, you may go to the OR for decompression, craniotomy, uh, mm-hmm. subdural or epidural. However, those patients need to have continuing workup. So very frequently in the world of trauma anesthesiology, you are going, you may go from the trauma bay to the CT scan, to the OR, back to the CT scan, back to IR, which even may require further operative uh, work, and then back to the ICU. And then those patients will come back for follow-up surgical procedures. So it it requires a very um, kind of uh, ever-changing fluid uh, understanding of the process. Right. And you you must be there for those findings because it may change your plan. Absolutely. All right. So... You, let's talk about airway. These patients often are going, to, at least with serious uh, trauma, uh, maybe unconscious or have a Glasgow coma score low enough that they need to be intubated. They may have injury to the airway. But what are some things that you keep in mind around airway management? I would imagine pretty much any trauma patient who's unconscious is going to have a C-collar on. Correct. So you've got that's one thing. How does that influence your airway management? So basically um, what we need is we need – direction from the anesthesia staff or the anesthesia provider to give direction to the trauma team. You may be the only provider for the airway at the head of the patient. So you need to instruct people, I need you to hold inline stabilization. We're going to remove the anterior portion of the collar. You need someone to provide um, cricoid pressure, correct cricoid pressure. If indeed you have an institution that follows that, many don't, but we do here. We did we did in my previous institutions. And uh, you need someone to uh, provide assistance. And you need respiratory therapy nearby as well. So what you're assuming is the patient's a full stomach and they have an unstable C-spine. Right. And uh, once again, uh, people will question, well, if you can't secure the airway uh, or you're having problems securing the airway, say cricoid pressure is diminishing your view a bit. It's not unheard of to ask them to relieve that cricoid pressure a little bit. Or you may need to elevate that laryngoscope a tad, uh, not knowing they have a cervical spine injury, because the immediate endpoint is anoxia right. and an unsecured airway. So there are ways that you need to change the algorithm, 
a rhythm a bit a bit outside the box, but that's for the immediate patient care. But once again, that takes us back to knowing the pathophysiology. If the patient has a gunshot wound or a stab wound, say to zone two of the neck, you may have an expanding hematoma, which will shift your airway from one side to the other and make it more difficult. Right. Patients with cervical spine injury, if they have a high cervical spine injury, may indeed have edema around that uh, unstable cervical spine. And you may not re- be able to pass a tube uh, below that area. So you have to be aware of that as well. Right. So there are many, uh, many concerns, uh, and, and you really need to assess that airway properly. Right. In terms of burn patients, if their voice is changing, you may need to secure that airway more quickly right. because of airway edema especially if there are signs of burn to the, to the uh, perioral area of the nose right. uh, or the mouth. So there, there are different considerations that you need. And you need to direct the trauma team as such that there is uh, more vacuity to this airway. Right. Okay, great. So let's get into the specifics. Do these patients tend to get intubated with a glide scope? Is that, does that helpful to not manipulate the C-spine or does it not matter? I think video laryngoscopy has changed the way we do manage these patients, especially in a teaching institution. It certainly allows the the attending anesthesiologist to see what the residents are seeing at that same time. Yep. Um, I think there, I think there, there is less spine movement. I think some of the literature bears that out as well. Uh, however, um, I, I do favor video laryngoscopy in a lot of these patients, but you may not always have one. Yep. And getting back to the basics and learning how to manage uh, an unstable cervical spine, an unknown. If we have a very unstable cervical spine, then a fiber optic intubation still is the way to go. Yep. However, you still need to manipulate or, or know how to intubate those uh, patients with minimal uh, movement of the cervical spine with a MAC-3 blade or a Miller 2 or a Miller right. 3 blade. So going back to the basics is essential before we jump right to video laryngoscopy, and that's my opinion. Okay, I agree. It's very important to not lose those skills. Uh, now, you mentioned if it's a known, unstable C-spine, we might go straight to a fiber. In a trauma, you might have a potentially unstable C-spine and a patient with blood in the airway. Correct which makes a fiber optic intubation difficult, Very obviously, difficult. Yes. the blood uh, obscuring your, your view of the fiber. What, how do you handle those airways? Well, you suction the airway out as best as possible, and um, you have somebody stabilize that spine for you. Um, when you have blood in the airway and that fiber optic intubation is, is going to be difficult, we shouldn't delay in repeating that fiber optic scope over and over. Uh, I think that uh, hypoxia at that point is is very essential to avoid. Yeah. And we may need to go with video laryngoscopy, or it could be that we may need to go straight to an awake tracheostomy on those patients. Yeah. Uh, that is the last part of the algorithm, but sometimes it's a necessary uh, procedure. Right. Is there a role, do you think, anymore for a retrograde wire intubation? Is that uh, something that we should have in our armamentarium? I have seen nothing but um, uh, unwanted events occur around retrograde wire uh, intubations. And if you get the wire retrograde, there's no guarantee that the tube will then follow that wire uh, with soft tissue or tissue injury that that you can actually enter the airway. There's no guarantee for that. Even putting an Aintree up over that wire. Um, I, I still believe that direct visualization than going to a cricothyroidotomy or an elective trache, uh, tracheostomy is a 
is a, is a safer, mm-hmm. uh, more medically effective way to manage those airways. Great. I agree. All right. So uh, let's say we talked about uh, being very careful with the C-spine, assuming it's unstable, <laughs> thinking about um, making sure you can do it if you had to do it with a basic uh, Mac or Miller blade, but knowing you have the uh, video laryngoscopy available, a fiber if you can do it and if you need to because you're really concerned about not moving that neck at all. Uh, so these are options for airway management. What about uh, what drugs are you going to use? I think the most typical, uh, certainly from the time I've spent in the emergency room, is Atomidate and Sucks mm-hmm. as your kind of go-to for a trauma intubation. Is that still, do you agree with that, uh, or, or do you think there's other options? I, I think your choice of induction agents is, becomes the art of the science. The recognition of uh, the patient who um, has a wide pulse pressure or a narrow pulse pressure. To me, a narrow pulse pressure indicates that that patient is really um, has a low uh, intravascular volume. Mm-hmm. So I may choose maybe half the milligrams per kilogram dose of etomidine on patients like that. Uh, I may go with four or eight of midazolam yep. and succinylcholine or rocuronium if, if I decide that's what, what my drug of choice at that time is. So it, it really comes down to the decision of of the uh, anesthesiologist or the anesthesia care provider right. at the head of the table. I would much rather give a lower dose of induction agent, even propofol, if that's what I had, uh, and then add that dose as we are intubating and the pressure goes up. Um, I'll, I'll give a little more induction agent if I need to. But in patients with narrow pulse pressures, I'm, I'm very, very careful with my induction my induction dose. So propofol, midazolam, etomidate, uh, even ketamine mm-hmm. uh, are are all choices, but once again, it, it's dictated by the situation. Yep. Okay. Great. So now the other question is: in the age of Sugamidex, is sucks should sucks still be our go to paralytic uh, in these patients? Or given that we don't know anything about them, they could be uh, you know in chronic renal failure. They could have an elevated potassium from that. They could have been found down for twenty four hours and have an elevated K from crush injury. There could be a lot of reasons why these patients might have elevated potassium. They could have an unknown myopathy. They could have, who knows, right? There could be lots of reasons why they might not do well with succinylcholine. Now that we could give a rapid sequence intubation dose of ROC, and if we had to, we could reverse it with Sugamidex, should that be what we do, or should we still have sucks be our go-to? Once again, I think it's that is personal preference mm-hmm. on the provider. Personally, I use very little succinylcholine anymore. Okay. I, I use a... a uh, a rapid sequence dose of rocuronium for all those reasons that you just mentioned. Yep. Uh, especially when I go in, up into the critical care units and intubate those patients who have been in bed and, and for a while, um, I I really have uh, not used succinylcholine as much as I've had in the past. I may use it in someone who comes in and, and doesn't have those obvious injuries, a young person who, who has a full stomach or is actively vomiting and and uh, try to get them, try to get their airway secured as, as quickly as possible. I may use a higher dose of sucks on them. But uh, for all the unknown reasons or those reasons that you previously mentioned, my go-to usually is, is rocuronium. Great. And so then the, the rapid sequence intubation dose of rocuronium is 1.2 milligrams per Correct. kilogram. Uh, you mentioned maybe using a larger dose of sucks if you were going to use it on, for example, a healthy person who comes in. Right. What dose would you give? I would, I would use about one. 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram okay. uh, of sucks, which would be a little higher than yeah. recommended, only because I practice in a teaching 
institution. Yeah. So it may give me a quick second look without half the redosing sucks. Yep. And we've seen, especially in patients who are hypovolemic, they may become bradycardic from that second dose of succinylcholine. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So, All right. So maybe a little bit bigger dose, you get really rapid onset, you'd get maybe anyway, but you maybe get a little bit longer correct. in case you as correct. the attending need yep. to take a second look. All right. So these patients... As we said before, some of them may need to go straight to the operating room. I think there are things like if you have certain injuries, right, a gunshot wound uh, in certain areas might necessitate it, a a positive fast exam with the ultrasound may necessitate it. Uh, There may be other things that the surgeon decides necessitate a trip straight to the operating room. Others, as you said before, may go to imaging first. Some may go to IR to look at embolizing a bleeding vessel. Uh, So there's lots of potential places and lots of transport, and you need to be resuscitating or able to resuscitate these patients the whole time. Correct. So as you're going, whether whether it's to IR, whether it's to the OR, whether it's to, it, to the CT scanner, what are you resuscitating these patients with? You mentioned that you certainly hope they didn't get a lot of crystalloid pre-hospital. Correct. Why is that? Crystalloid pre-hospital does a, a few things. First of all, it's cold. Second of all, it dilutes coagulation factors uh, that we, we know are being used up rapidly. Uh, third of all, we also know that uh, it incites uh, the systemic inflammatory response. We know with some of the uh, more current literature that uh, the, the, the larger the dose of shock that these patients receive, say in a, a blunt trauma patient, their colloid and cotic pressure, how low that is directly is related to their survival. So if they have a low colloid and cotic pressure, which is most likely related to this breakdown of the endothelial surface layer, we're giving crystalloid, and we're giving it right to the interstitium. And those patients develop abdominal compartment syndrome. If they have a pulmonary contusion, they will end up uh, on the ventilator longer in the ICU, probably a more difficult patient to ventilate during their, their emergency procedures earlier. So crystalloid really, besides just bumping up our pressure very transiently, really does no service to the trauma patients. Great. So let's say you've got your patient, you know, they've lost some amount of blood. Uh, Ideally, you're going to get some sort of lab value back, whether that's an immediate um, hemocue that you can get kind of an immediate read, whether you have to send it off to the lab for a stat, uh, whole blood hemoglobin, but somehow you're getting some level. But in the meantime, are you going to give fluid at all? If so, are you saying you'd give colloid? What would you do? I think it's it's very important to know which patients require immediate massive transfusion, and I mean high ratio resuscitation. Mm-hmm. So there's predictors that we have, and there's various different predictor scores and, and uh, processes that are more heavily weighted and some are unweighted. Uh, we tend to use the assessment of blood consumption. Brian Cotton did, did a lot of work with that, and it's to give him the credit, uh, really looking at vital signs fast and where that injury is, meaning that as a patient hypotensive, tachycardic, positive fast, or they have a thoracic penetrating torso trauma. And that gives us more of an indication. And also we have viscoelastic monitoring now uh, that we can send to look at alpha angles in terms of helping us predict um, the need for massive transfusion. But I think identifying initially those patients and immediately getting them a high ratio resuscitation is extremely important. And this leads us now to how available are those blood products in most emergency departments. Yeah. Um, and when you say yeah. high ratio, is that's the one-to-one-to-one. That yeah, that's a, a unit of uh, packed red blood cells. Uh, occasionally, uh, they're uncross-matched, mm-hmm. as well as the AB negative, the plasma. So that would be red blood cells, plasma, 
and a unit of platelets. And most of our bags of platelets contain six units of apheresis platelets. So by giving six reds, uh, six FFP, and a bag of platelets is really high ratio. Right. So that's one to one to one. one, to one. When we say one to one to one or high ratio, that's Correct. what we mean. Correct. Um, and that's opposed to our normal practice in the operating room, which is often to give a lot of red cells before we even start thinking about FFP. And it's a different patient population. Yeah. You, know, you have more of a gradual blood loss uh, instead of a large blood loss. And, and the acuity of that resuscitation is, is different. The, the physiology of those patients, the pathophysiology is much different from the intraoperative patient losing blood than that trauma patient right. who comes in from be it a blood or penetrating injury. Great. So you're going to avoid, in some of these patients, at least the ones, as you said, using the ABC score or whatever score you use that you think is high risk for having lost a lot of blood, you may avoid crystalloid completely, just go straight to the massive transfusion. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. But that has to be available. It has to be available. And if we just have red cells available and we know that the more red cells these patients get, excluding survival bias, uh, that we're giving a non-hemostatic resuscitation. Yep. We're basically leaving citrated red cells with no factors. Uh, so that uh, will do them more harm. Right. Now, one thing that comes up, uh, sometimes people will ask, well, if you're giving one-to-one-to-one, why not just give whole blood? And I believe the answer is we would give it if we had it, but we we don't have it. Uh, It's difficult. Its shelf life is very short. I believe there's some work being done now uh, by some uh, uh, very respected people down in uh, Brook Army, down at the Institute of Surgical Research, uh, to extend the shelf life. And I think the problem with keeping whole blood on the shelf for a prolonged period of time are actually the platelets at four degrees. Mm-hmm. So we freeze the platelets off the whole blood, and, and they're working now, I believe, on and keeping that whole blood with the platelets, storing it at four degrees. But there needs to be some work done on platelet receptors uh, stored at four degrees in the presence of fibrinogen. So um, I think once we get that work done, uh, we are looking at maybe prolonged shelf lives of whole blood up to two weeks or so, which would be very, very promising for even the civilian population. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for that. So, all right. So you've got the resuscitation, which we talked about, and you really are, to the extent you can, avoiding crystalloid. Now, if you have to give crystalloid, are you avoiding normal saline these days? We are. Uh, I think there's enough literature out there, even in elective surgical patients, that we really, uh, there's very few indications to give normal saline. Yeah. Especially in the trauma population, I believe normal saline really doesn't need to be used. Now, if you have somebody with traumatic brain injury uh, who has a combination of hypovolemic shock with TBI, then I think you would be looking more at a, um, a, a hypertonic saline mm-hmm. uh, in, in the presence of TBI. Right. Now, those patients have a higher mortality because of the combination of injury. But I think our, our primary goal there is to decrease cerebral edema, get them to the operating room, decompress them, right. and then work on the hypovolemic shock side. Now, there's also literature out there that show that those patients need high ratio as well, that those patients with TBI that get high ratio resuscitation have a better survival than patients without TBI that get a low uh, low ratio of resuscitation, meaning more red cells, many mm-hmm. more red cells than the fresh frozen plasma platelets. So I think even though we're using hypertonic in patients with traumatic brain injury, we still have to keep to those, the premise of high ratio of resuscitation. Great. All right. So 
Uh, and just to be clear for everybody out there, the reason I think you're saying you, you avoid normal saline, the reason I certainly don't give it in the ICU or in the OR, uh, with rare exceptions like people who have elevated ICP, as you said, is because it causes a metabolic acidosis. It's been shown to cause increased rates of renal dysfunction postoperatively uh, or post-resuscitation, uh, and uh, it just doesn't stack up well compared to balanced crystallite solutions. And more so in those patients with hypoperfusion to begin with. Yep. Great. So we're on the same page there. All right. So you, if you have to use um, crystalloid, you're going to use plasmalite or lactated ringers. You're going to, depending on the patient, you may go straight to the massive transfusion, and that means activating a massive transfusion protocol if you Correct. have one. Yes. Um, and then uh, you, what about thinking about uh, tranexamic acid? Is that something you're, you're going to early in these patients? Uh, we, we did in the past. I think there's some data out there now. Uh, especially from the group in Denver, Gene Moore, Sun Hunter have done some great work with that, um, looking at patients in different degrees of fibrinolysis. Uh, and there are other schools of thought uh, that think that if we're giving high ratio resuscitation, there's there's the, the same amount, maybe uh, better immunomodulation and reversal of the hyperfibrinolytic state with high ratio. Um, those patients who, uh, for me, on initial viscoelastic monitoring that are hyperfibrinolytic, I will then give TXA. I, I don't give it to every patient, and I believe some of the, the surgeons here at Johns Hopkins uh, believe the same, that it's kind of a wait and see. Let's get the viscoelastic monitoring and see where they are in terms of their fibrinolysis. And if you are going to give um, an antifibrinolytic, is it always going to be TXA, or do you ever consider Amicar? No, we, in, in trauma, we, we go more with tranexamic acid. I've not given Amicar. I, I've given it in, in cardiac. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do know that tranexamic acid has, has a better anti-inflammatory effect. And, and even in the cardiac uh, literature, looking at uh, cytokine uh, release in IL-6, uh, tranexamic acid is better in uh, inhibiting IL-6 uh, release. Uh, so it, it's a better infl- anti-inflammatory as well. And, and we're always looking at protecting right the endothelial surface layer. That's where a lot of the focus is now. Uh, so that, that helps us as well. However, with some of the other uh, literature and, and data that's out there from, from Denver, that we're more hesitant to just give it to everyone on a general basis. Great. All right. So uh, let's talk for a second about albumin. Clearly, we know that in traumatic brain injury, albumin is bad. It increases mortality. But what about other trauma states? Let's say a penetrating gunshot wound where you don't feel like there's TBI. Is there a role for albumin? The only reason um, that I would be giving any albumin is if I had a little delay in uh, getting my massive transfusion cooler uh, and my pressure was a bit low. A bit low, meaning that my mean pressure was less than 50. I may be giving volume with some albumin to those patients while I'm waiting uh, in lieu of crystalloid, as we spoke, that Mm -hmm. we tend not to go with the crystalloid. So in those patients, I would. Uh, If I had a a patient with a penetrating injury and they had a blood pressure of 80 and they were a young patient previously, I knew that much about them, then uh, a mean pressure of 50, 55 for a very short amount of time with a penetrating injury actually made may decrease the amount of bleeding before I do get my massive transfusion cooler. So it may get me by for a bit, but uh, I wouldn't use it as my my sole foundation for my resuscitation. Okay, so you brought up uh, 
map uh, mean arterial pressures and kind of uh, what your goal might be. So I want to follow up with that. Is there a role for permissive or deliberate hypotension in bleeding trauma patients? And if so, how long and at what level would you allow their blood pressure to fall? That's been um, a point of contention or discussion for a long time. I think some of the earlier uh, data that we have with permissive hypotension was prior to high ratio resuscitation. Okay. So we were using more red cells, more crystalloid, and there was more of a reason to keep that blood pressure low. In patients who have multi-trauma, it's very difficult to get their pressure to 90 Mm -hmm. to meet the permissive hypotension criteria. So um, I would, I personally um, resuscitate those patients. And as I'm resuscitating them and their pressure is going up, I may add more anesthetic like a narcotic uh, to maintain my pressure around 90 to 100. Uh, If the surgeons are having to pack, yes, I think there still is a role there. Uh, Then we have other things that are disposable now, like some institutions have Roboa. Uh, which is the resuscitative endovascular balloon mm-hmm. for the inclusion of the aorta. So we can actually cross-clamp the aorta and um, decrease the amount of hemorrhage, uh, and uh, that will decrease the uh, amount of use of permissive hyp- hypotension. However, I think there is still a role in it. Uh, when we have massive bleeding and we're packing all four quadrants, I think keeping that pressure down is important. Again, that's where communication comes into play in the operating room. Yep. When you tell the surgeons that you're having a tough time getting that pressure to 80 and you need some time to uh, resuscitate the patient, they're more than happy to pack all four quadrants, let you catch up. And when you get that pressure to 90 or 100, then they'll, they'll be uh, uh, more than happy to unpack each of those quadrants individually and uh, tend to those injuries. Right. Uh, so, yes, there is still a role. I don't think every patient needs that. Uh, and, and once again, in the young patients, I think that a systolic of 80 or mean of 50 to 55 uh, is, is fine until you get the needed master transfusion cooler if you do have that protocol, which you should, by the way. Great. Okay. So if you had to let them or if it's helpful, uh, if there's a lot of bleeding, maybe you let their map fall to 50 to 55, at least for younger patients Correct. Um, while they try to get the bleeding under control. All right. Um, let's you mentioned that we now have uh, the ability to do viscoelastic monitoring, um, and that is a really important tool in trauma. Correct. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. What is it, and how do we use it? Well, we have uh, different devices at our disposal. Uh, we have the thromboelastography, uh, the TAG. We have ROTEN, which is rotational thromboelastometry, and we have Sonoclot as well. Um, so what it does is it, it allows us to look at uh, more of a global uh, approach or view of coagulation. When we send a blue top tube down and we get the INR, what we're doing is we're looking at factor activity. We're really not taking into consideration the, roles of, the role of thrombin, the full role of fi- fibrin, uh, the role of the platelets. Uh, they're all excluded from the INR. And we know that INR either underestimates or overestimates uh, the coagulopathy depending on the degree of trauma, whether it's mild, moderate, or severe. So we're really looking at the patient, how they are coagulating in vivo with an ex vivo approach. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, it's very important um, to utilize viscoelastic monitoring in, in, in the face of trauma. I, 
I use it for all of my cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, there are some numbers that we need to be aware of, like uh, those platelets may have normal activity, but if they're falling down below 100,000 with continuum bleeding, if they're approaching 50,000 with slow bleeding, then I think we need to re- replace those. If our fibrinogen is trending downward down to about the 150 level, uh, even though we still have good functional fibrinogen and we have ongoing bleeding, there's still a role in the standard lab testing. Mm-hmm. But I think getting the global picture with viscoelastic monitoring is is uh, is paramount when we're we're treating especially trauma patients. Great. Now I know you give a whole talk on viscoelastic monitoring, so we may do a whole separate show on that with you later. But let's just, if you had to say the kind of most important or the things you think everyone, even if they're not you know particularly specializing in trauma, what are the things you would want every resident or trainee or practitioner out there to just be aware of with viscoelastic monitoring? What are the parameters, the kind of major ones to look at? The major ones, um, I would say the R value. The R value is really the reactive phase, the proteolytic phase, where all of the factors are being activated. And um, the one, uh, one of the devices, uh, the, the TAG, the thromboelastogram, uh, allows us to look at actually thrombin velocity curve, meaning that thrombin burst that we get uh, when we um, actually activate the platelets and that prothrombin is converted to thrombin. And that really activates the fibrin kinetics, which would be more of an alpha and the K portion. Uh, that's very important. Uh, the fibrin kinetics really um, are, are initiated by how well we're producing thrombin and how well we're activating platelets with the thrombin. So I think the key parameters are the R, the alpha, the K, the MA, which would be the maximum amplitude. Uh, and that really is a combination of what we see in the alpha angle and the K uh, in terms of fibrin kinetics and that interplay between the fibrin and the platelets. Uh, we have a way to look at the functional fibrinogen as well to dissect out what part of that MA are, are really the platelets, or their activity, and the, the fibrinogen. However, the anticoagulation side of that or the coagulopathic side, the breakdown side is also important looking at lice 30, which is the lysis of that clot 30 minutes after the maximum amplitude is important, especially in the trauma patients. Yep. That gives us some indication of how the degree of fibrinolysis, if any. Right. Uh, and, and if they are, uh, what we're looking at now, have no fibrinolysis, say they're hypercoagulable, and they have something which has been coined in the literature by Gene Moore as fibrinolysis shutdown, it's probably more important that those patients Again, coming back to the TXA argument, mm-hmm. we're using this device to know whether we need to give TXA or not. Right. Uh, and um, in, in trauma patients, it's a tough call, Jed, because they, they usually have either, they're either hypercoagulable or have normal coagulation, but the holes that they have are too big to clot. Yeah. So when you send um, a viscoelastic test, it may come back normal in a bleeding patient, and that confuses people. Right. Um, the coagulation system is trying to do its job, but trauma is a surgical disease. Right. So we need to get them to the operating room as quickly as possible, replace that whole blood with component therapy, which we have now, but not be fooled by the normal viscoelastic monitoring or the hypercoagulable picture. Right. So getting back to knowing the big picture, the pathophysiology of the injury, uh, putting everything together and using viscoelastic monitoring as another tool uh, to put that puzzle piece together is really important. Right. 
Great. So just to go over these again, and this is obviously much easier if you can look at it, so I will put up on the show notes a picture of a thromboelastogram readout, but the R value, so I mean for lack of a better way to do this, if you could think of this, I think, right, as essentially a string attached to a hot dog. So the beginning, the string, is the R value, right? It's how long it takes for the reaction to start Or you place. can say it's the stem of a martini glass. Oh, okay. <laughs> That'll be a little more familiar to most people. <laughs> oh, great. Perfect. <laughs> All right. So the stem of a martini glass. Hadn't thought of that one, but good. So you have the stem, right, or the string or whatever it is that's, that's just essentially a two-dimensional line. Right. And that, whenever that um, that indicates the factor starting to function, right? Basically, it looks like a, a wine goblet on its side, right? Right. You right. have the stem on its side, yep. And then our alpha would be the takeoff of the, or the K would be the initial takeoff, right? And then the alpha would be the angle of that goblet, yep. And then that goblet would have a maximum width, which would be the MA, yep. And then it would taper a little bit to the top which would be clot retraction from that cup. Right. So if you think of a kind of a white wine goblet on its side, it's very, very close to what a normal tank should Love it. That's a great image. All right, so we've got the goblet. Now the R value, that the stem, uh, is measuring essentially factor function, right? Correct. And so if you have an R value that is too long, you, in theory, might need to give factors. Or if you give that patient too much crystalloid on the initial resuscitation, you'll hemodilute the factors and prolong the R. Hence, another reason why not to give the crystalloid. And if we have a prolonged R, we have to know how much crystalloid they got. Perfect. What if you have a uh, alpha or a K, a K that is uh, off? What does that indicate? Well, the, usually that's... a a change in the fibrin kinetics, abnormal fibrin kinetics, that conversion of fibrin to fibrin. Now, most people uh, will look at a thromboelastogram, or you can use Rotem. I'm not a Rotem user, but a lot of uh, my colleagues, especially in the military, use rotational thromboelastometry. Uh, and I, I think we get the same information in different ways. Mm-hmm. And what you're most familiar with is the one you should use. Okay. Uh, but I believe you should use something. So the I, I'm speaking just in terms of TEG because that's what I've been using since, you know, last century. Right, right, right. <laughs> and um, so the alpha and the K gives us some indication of fibrin kinetics. Now, the fibrin kinetics will be poor if we're not producing enough thrombin. That's why I look at the thrombin velocity curve. Uh, if we're not producing enough thrombin, I, 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 I'll use that to then treat uh, the patient for a, a decrease in thrombin and we production. Do, and we, how would we treat that? Well, we can, we can actually give um, more plasma. Mm-hmm. Uh, other ways to do it is to do low-dose low recombinant 7A. Okay. Uh, and, uh, or uh, we can give uh, actually low-dose of prothrombin complex concentrates as well. Right, and those include thrombin, so you're Correct. replacing them. exactly. And then uh, the final piece being the MA. So if the MA is low, meaning the amplitude, the maximum amplitude is low, then that, as you said, would be either you're low on fibrinogen or you're low on platelets or you're, one of those aren't working right or both. So r- normally if you have normal fibrin kinetics and your MA is low normal or just below normal, uh, then that would indicate platelets mm-hmm. and, and the need for, for giving platelets. Okay, great. And then if it's uh, if the... Uh, Kinetics are not normal, then you are, are sorry are normal, but your MA is low. Then it may be the fibrin. And, and your MA doesn't will not tend to be l- low 
where it's glaringly low if you're, you're alpha and your K, your K and your alpha are, are normal. Are normal. So yeah. if you if your alpha and your K are low and your MA is low, then it could be fibrinogen, could be platelets. But correct, you're saying- and that's the role of functional fibrinogen yeah. testing there. So we can we can dissect out the degree or the need of platelets or fibrinogen in those cases. Great. All right. So very useful test, um, but as you said, still probably a role for getting traditional fibrinogen platelets and. Uh, what about PT, PTT, INR? Still a role for that or not? There's still a role for uh, PT, PTT, I believe. Uh, however, I I still tend to use them only because other members of the team and most people are comfortable with the standard lab tests. Right. However, you still don't lose sight of the clinical picture. Uh, and and the other the other re- the way I use viscoelastic monitoring is if I have a normal tag and we still have oozing, um, and we have a low fibrinogen or a low platelet count, that we do hyperactivate some of these factors. So I, I may go ahead then and, and give platelets, even though my MA is close to normal, because I have clinical bleeding right. and my numbers are down, even though their function in that cup is normal. Right. So it's putting the big picture together. Great. Now, you mentioned low-dose, uh, either fa- activated factor 7 or low-dose prothrombin complex concentrate. When would you go to high dose? When would you say, that you know what, this patient needs a full dose of one of these factors or the, the complex concentrates? If I send my visco, if I've been giving high ratio resuscitation, uh, and, and usually when you're giving high ratio resuscitation, you're sending a tag, and it's you get the result of the indication of your high ratio resuscitation. Uh, so if you're if you are uh, utilizing your massive transfusion with high ratios, we talked to one to one to one, and you look at the tag and it looks unrecognizable, so you have a serious problem. Yep. Uh, number one, those patients may be acidotic. They still may be cold. So there are things that won't function properly due to hypothermia or acidosis. Um, and if those patients are still in severe hemorrhagic shock, you then may need uh, to go with prothrombin complex concentrates or you've given cryo and platelets and the factors and red cells and you're really not making uh, uh, good headway in, in your resuscitation, then you may need to to add factors. Now, there, there's a lot of uh, literature out there and a lot of interest looking at going with factor concentrates instead of the high volumes. Mm-hmm. And once again, it, it dictate the scenario dictates. If you lost a blood volume and you get all your factor concentrates, you're still down most of your blood volume. Yep. Uh, so that needs to be replaced. Uh, if you have, if you need a mild to moderate resuscitation and your viscoelastic monitoring is abnormal, then factor concentrates uh, do have a role there. Uh, fibrinogen concentrates, PCCs, uh, to decrease the volume of resuscitation. Great. So, again, it's the scenario. Okay. So, a lot of resuscitation in these cases. Uh, what lines do you want them to have in the OR? Are you putting a cordis in everybody? Can it be a groin line? Does it matter where it is? Uh, do you need a central line or not? Once again, back to knowing the patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a patient has a pelvic crush injury, I do not want them to have a groin line. If yep. they're shot five times in the abdomen, probably need to have something above the, that, the site of injury. Yep. Uh, so um, usually a high volume line. To me, the rapid infusion catheters, preferably placed in most patients, uh, the RIC lines as we call mm-hmm. them, uh, are invaluable. Um, I, I will put in 
is, and, and I, I always tell the residents that no patient, no trauma patients have died from improperly, from properly placed lines. It's the improperly placed lines that you have to be cautious of. So no, not every trauma patient needs a cordis. Uh, but the lines should be above the site of injury. Mm-hmm. And if you need to go to a rapid infusion device, you need a, a, a diameter of line, which will give you the lowest line pressures from those devices. Right. So if you need to go to a device like that, then a quarter of recline may be essential, once again, above the injury. Right. And those are devices such as either a level one infuser or a, a, a Belmont. A Belmont, the Thermocores. Okay. Uh, the level ones we haven't been using a lot okay. uh, because they have a lot of, uh, I think there's some issues in terms of the, the abilities or the ability for untoward events to occur. And we've seen some of those, so we're going more uh, with the later devices, the Belmont and the Thermocores. Great. All right. And we won't get into too much detail on that. Let me ask you about antibiotics. What role, if any, is there for antibiotics in these patients? And if they're having their entire blood volume replaced every... Who knows? Every few minutes, how often do you need to redose them? Um, normally, uh, those patients, depending on the antibiotic that you're using, and, and most of these patients, if they don't have a bowel injury, we're giving them antsephrit off the bat, and we're losing a blood volume. I, I would redose those antibiotics every hour or two if we're losing a blood volume. Yeah. Instead of our standard every four. Uh, yeah, every yeah. four. Okay. So the higher the blood loss, the the more frequently I, I would be, and it's always a discussion. You don't just reach back for your ANSEF and sure. shoot it in. You always discuss it with the surgeons, yep. and they'll usually agree that we should redose. And I think that's really important. And glucose control as well in these patients is very important, especially patients with with traumatic brain injuries. So that's something else that you have to be aware of. Yep, that's a great point. One question that comes up sometimes is, let's say you start with uncross matched blood because you didn't have time to cross match it, and you've given this patient ten, twelve, twenty units of uncross matched blood. Is it a good idea, once you do get a type and screen back, to actually now switch to their correct cross-matched blood? Or now that you've filled them up with O-negative, should you just continue using O-negative? Is there any information on that? I have replaced many, many units of uncross-matched blood, and then once we get that patient type and cross, going to his blood type. And I have not seen any problem with that. Okay. Uh, so... Um, I'm not aware that there's specific literature related to that, uh, but I have not seen it in my 28 years of doing this. Okay, that I've gone to their to their own cross matched uh, blood and had and, a problem have, and not had a problem. Great. You mentioned that acidosis can be a big problem, and we think of that trio of badness of acidosis, uh, um, hypothermia, and coagulopathy. Uh, is there anything we can do about the acidosis other than? Resuscitating? Should we be thinking about bicarb? And I'll, uh, everyone who listens to this podcast knows I'm I'm a big anti bicarb person, but uh, but I don't take care of trauma patients. So uh, you tell me, is there a role for bicarb in trauma patients? I'm glad we're on the same team. Good. <laughs> um, bicarb can only do one thing: master's degree of acidosis and shock. Yeah. Uh, if you continually give bicarb, you get no feedback into the success of your resuscitation or the efficacy of your resuscitation. If the patients come in and they have a pH of 6.5, 6.7, I'm, I'm not against giving an amper to a bicarb until we can resuscitate them back up to at least a pH of 7. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then you get more of a response to catecholamines, both intrinsic and extrinsic. Um, and, and, and I think that, that alone, if we're down that low, uh, there's more going on than worrying about bicarb. Right. So I'd like to see those patients maybe get an amp or so. 
but use it judiciously. Yeah. Uh, because once again, it just masks the degree of shock. Right. This is not where we're taking a patient who's seven one or seven two and trying to get them up to seven four with Correct. our bicarb. Correct. Great. All right, Bob. This has been great. I think we've covered a lot of really good stuff. Um, is there anything you think we didn't cover that we should hit before we end? I don't think so. I think I think we've you know briefly gone over a lot of subjects here, and and, and it's it. Each individual subject can be a, a podcast in itself. Right. And uh, I've actually had to hold back <laughs> in terms of the information that I, I like to discuss. But this has been great. Fantastic great. And great we experience. And we'll, no, no reason we can't do one on, on all and any of this stuff. So we'll have you back soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, Bob. All right. That was fantastic. Check out the website, ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can leave a comment on this show. Let us know, is this how you do trauma anesthesia? Is there anything we didn't cover that you think is really important? Anything you do differently? We can all learn from your comments when you leave them on the website, ACRAC.com. Of course, you can also access all the episodes there and leave comments on any of them. And you can reach me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, take a minute, go to iTunes, find the show, leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show when they're looking for an anesthesia or critical care podcast. And if you like the show and you are willing to help support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even just a dollar or two makes a big difference towards helping us defray the cost of making the show, making sure it stays free and available to everyone out there who listens to it every day. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Bob Sikorsky, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.